Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is August 27th, 2015. This is episode 1633 of the Survival Podcast, and it is a Thursday. And we are kind of back in the saddle again after all the turmoil, and we are having a listener call show. This is where you make calls to 866-65-THINK, 866-65-THINK, and uh, the numbers in full are 866-658-4465. You'll get a voice message service. You leave me your question or your comment. Uh, you get that all done in two minutes or less, and maybe you'll hear yourself on the air in the future. The rules for calling in to make it more likely you're going to get on the air, call from a quiet location. If you're using a cell phone, make sure you got at least two bars on it, because no one will be here to tell you that you sound like this. Jack, I was one. Uh, and that happens every week. I get a couple calls like that. Uh, don't call from the back of a motorcycle or running a weed eater or whatever other noisy thing you, you can think of. And uh, when you go to call, make sure you know what your question or comment is and have maybe it written down if you're, if you're the kind of person that maybe that would be helpful for. And uh, just make your question or your comment first. Hi, Jack. This is Bill. My question is boom. And then give me all your details. It will work so well. Trust me, I'm a professional. It will make it more likely you'll get through the screening, you'll end up on the air, or that you won't make five calls in a row hanging up and starting over again and then giving up, which also happened recently. So uh, I'm not picking on anybody, just trying to help you guys out. Um, I'll tell you this. It, it's wide open for calls right now. It is absolutely wide open for calls. Almost every recent call is on today's show um, that, was, that met the guidelines. Uh, because I have been so disrupted with doing this, this show, the call volume is way down. So this week, if you call in, you're going to be at the front of the queue. You're going to be likely to get on the air. So make your calls now, 866-65-THINK. Leave your messages for next week. There will be a listener call show next week. Your call will not sit in queue for God knows how long again while I get my life back together. Anyway, with that, before I get to your calls, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you by helping to make sure the show is here for you on Monday through Friday, five days a week. Sponsor of the day number one today is jmbullion.com. When I'm looking for silver or gold, I go to jmbullion.com, and I'll tell you why. They're a small enough company that I can personally communicate directly with the president, Michael, at any time of my choosing. And that means as, uh, as someone that's endorsing them, if you ever have a problem that doesn't get resolved by their customer service, which is 99% of the time stellar anyway, I can make sure that it gets taken care of for you. And I think that's really important in my sponsors. Next is pricing. The entire point of buying silver and gold is it's the same, it's the same, it's the same. You get the same silver eagle from JM Bullion as you do from Atmex or Monex. It's exactly the same. It's the same purity, it's the same weight, it's the same design, it's the same cut. It is the same. It's like buying a Wilson basketball, whether you buy it from you know Walmart or Academy Sports and Outdoors. It's the same. That's the point. So why pay more? So why not deal with a company that's a small company, that has great customer service, that offers free shipping on all orders, and has better pricing when you're buying the same thing. Now, why silver and gold? I'm not an all-in guy. I'm not the guy that, like, you need to get out of the dollar. They're going to burn it to the ground. It's going to be worthless tomorrow. By the way, give me your dollars, and here's some silver. I'm not that guy. But I do know that the plan for our money is a continued devaluation through the process of inflation, which is a hidden tax on the wealth of the American people. And I know that's the case because the former chairman of the Federal Reserve said so on the floor of the United States House of Representatives while being questioned by Ron Paul. 
He admitted that and said, it's okay. That's the way the system works. It's supposed to work that way. Well, if that's the plan, then my plan is to make sure I have a wealth assurance policy. We talk about insurance a lot, but assurance is, is equally important. And the way I personally do that is I have 10% of my net wealth, roughly, in silver and gold. I recommend that you do something similar. My personal recommendations are that you consider uh, a wealth assurance program of 5% to 10% of your net wealth in hard commodities like silver and gold. And if you need silver and gold, I can't give you a better recommendation than JM Bullion. Check them out today. And remember, members of our support brigade, you do get a discount on larger orders from JM Bullion. Check the benefits section of your MSB account to learn more about that. And sponsor of the day number two today is the awesome, illustrious Chef Keith Snow with HarvestEating.com, where he'll teach you to make cooking a, a life skill by focusing on technique over recipe. If you don't think cooking is a survival skill, brother, you've never lived on MREs for six months like I have. You get pretty creative in those situations. Being able to cook all the food that we talk about growing for ourselves and sourcing locally is a great way uh, to enhance your quality of life and to save money. If you're not, if you know, if you become a great cook, you're not going out to expensive restaurants. And Chef Keith has a lot of ways to help you do that. He has an awesome podcast. He has a really great YouTube channel. And uh, right now he's got some of the coolest uh, sauces you'll ever find. Pasta sauces and new packaging that makes shipping a lot easier. Things like creamy basil, flame roasted red pepper sun-dried tomato and rosemary. Uh, soon he'll be moving things over to Amazon, but for now, just go ahead and check out HarvestEating.com for all of that and more. Remember, Chef Keith will help you make cooking into a life skill. Next up, let's take a look at the year that was the episode, the year 1633, because the episode is 1633. At TSPWiki.com, Alex Shrugged has the three uh, segments queued up for us today. They are... Galileo admits his guilt and walks. A modest proposal for genocide and a coalition of criminals. I'm going to read Galileo because to me it fits in with something we're going to talk about in our lead story today. Galileo admits his guilt and walks. Last year, Galileo published his book comparing the Copernicus theory of universe against the Roman Catholic version of the universe. Argument is allowed as long as no firm conclusions are made against church doctrine. Galileo has already cleared his book with the Inquisition, but a fellow scientist complains to the Inquisition when Galileo appears to insult him. The Inquisition calls Galileo to Rome to account for himself. He is not tortured, and in fact, he is staying with the ambassador of Florence. After waiting several months for a judgment, he's found guilty of heresy. Galileo offers to rewrite his book, That's Enough, so he completely repudiates his book. In part, Galileo writes... With a sincere heart and unfeigned faith, I abjure, curse, and detest the said errors and heresies and generally every other error and heresy contrary to the Holy Church. And I swear that I will never more in future say or assert anything which may give rise to similar suspicion of me. My take by Alex Shrugged. It is a myth that Galileo sh shouted at the court, and yet it still moves, referring to the earth moving around the sun. Waiting in comfort for judgment and engaging in penance and luxury accommodation suggests the church needed a retraction from Galileo more than a dead Galileo. The bottom line is that Galileo got his information out to the scientists who could use it, and the church got its retraction so that the laity was kept in line during the counter-reformation fight. Galileo also committed to recite seven psalms a week for three years, 
This was a non-punishment. Galileo loved the Bible and he was faithful. So the seventh psalms a week, a day, seventh psalms a week, a weekday was a cinch. Um, here's here's my thing on this. This sounds so much like modern government. You wonder if anything really has changed. Now, of course, we don't have scientists being brought before the church, but let's be honest about what was the Roman Catholic Church at the time. It was a state unto itself. It was a form of government with the power to imprison and execute people. In some ways, the church of the 1600s was more powerful than any nation in existence today. It was government. And the government said, yeah, you can do this. And then somebody else who the government favored said, he insulted me, you should not let him do this. And then the, the, the government, the church, came and said, thou hast sinned against the state. Not against God, against the church, the government. You will recant this and do what we say, and we'll make it easy on you, but you'll do what we say. Because you don't want to be dead, we don't want to make you dead, but we need this to go away. And then Galileo says, okay, I'll do it. This is what happens to people today. When they, when they stand in defiance of government, they're either ostracized or given an out or banished, or thrown away, or put in prison. Now you'd say, well, no. People say bad things about the government all the time. You do every day, Jack. Yeah, but I'm not important enough to do that to. When somebody at a level of importance or credibility stands up and points out what government's doing wrong, they're chased away, banished. Edward Snowden got it? Edward Snowden told the truth about our government, and hides now in fear of his life. He told the truth about what our government was doing to us, and he's now hiding in fear of his life. Some other people, who I won't even name individually, have released classified information or put classified information in jeopardy, but they did so for their own personal gains. One of those people in particular is currently the leader and the Democratic Party for the nomination for president. We'll see how that plays out. My take, the more things change, the more they say the same. And when you can't prove somebody wrong, fear, intimidation, and violence is always the course of the state. The more things change, the more they stay the same. Next up, do consider joining the Member Support Brigade. If you do that, you get exclusive content available only to members. And you help support the show at 18.3 cents an episode. You can learn more by going to the survivalpodcast.com, clicking on members, military, law enforcement, Peace Corps, and first responders. All of you, active duty or prior service, qualify for a discount. Simply email me with TSPC service discount in the subject line. Send that email to jack at the survivalpodcast.com. Tell me about your service in one or two sentences, and I'll send you the discount code. Do that again before, not after you join. So leading off today, I actually want to talk about something we got mentioned in yesterday's show. A movie from 1995 called Harris and Bergeron. This was based on a short story written by Kurt Vonnegut in 1961. The movie uses the root of that short story. The short story is only a few pages long. Um, to tell a much longer story, almost a two-hour movie. And with that, you might add, there's a lot of things added, artistic interpretation, but the movie is so accurate as to modern day, given that it was produced in 1995. Um That is scary, and I put out a post about it today and a link to where you can watch it on YouTube. And even though this is a call-in show, I want to start out with talking a little bit about this movie 
because I think that it's something that can help wake people up. I think the people around you that when you try to talk to them about what the government's doing and all, and they won't listen to you, um, you know, they may actually watch a movie that's entertaining and get something out of it, and then a discussion might in, in, entail afterward. And again, the accuracy of this movie as to where we are right now in, in, in time is, is, is striking. The movie came out in 95 on Showtime. Uh, it was on Showtime quite a few times. It won several Gemini Awards. It was in rental uh, facilities, you know, like Blockbuster and stuff like that, back when people still used them in the 90s for a very long time. And then it all just vanished and went away. Um, I don't think it's conspiracy theory to say that I think that the people in the media industry would prefer that it stay away. Uh, a couple different other dystopian versions of it. Uh, 2083 is the year that it's set in. Uh, there's a movie called that that's just horrible. That's honestly closer to the short story, but it's just horrible. It doesn't make any points. Um, I think this movie would be ripe to be remade if Hollywood and the powers that be had any interest in such things being seen. I'm going to play a scene from the movie for you right now. And then I'm going to come back and give you a few other quotes from this movie. We'll talk about it a bit, and then we'll go ahead and take your first call. Um, I think if you really pay attention to what's going on in this movie uh, with the scene I'm about to play for you, you will have chills and goosebumps up your back, your arms, and your neck. The, the, the context of the scene that I'm about to play for you is it's a, a school classroom, and um, Harrison's been doing too well. He's been getting A's. And the, the A of 2083 is a C. That's what they want everybody to get. If you got a D, we want to bring you up to a C. If you got a B, we want to bring you down to a C. But A's are unacceptable. A's are like F's. And you're thinking too much and you're in danger. But the teacher understands that Harrison's trying. He's failed, uh, I think, like the 13th grade four times or something because he's still doing too well. And they're discussing a, you know, how they got to where they are in history. And she ends up calling on Harrison because he's the one that can answer the questions. So listen to this. And again, I think if you think about where we are right now in 2015, and you listen to the, the, the specific number given of 2018 in this, it may raise your hackles. What name is given to the period that started with the end of the Second World War and ended with the dissolution of the Soviet Union, Mars? Uh, the Cold War? Right. And what do we call the period after the Cold War? The Great Recession. And what made this recession different from all other recessions before it, Jeannie? Uh, well, it never really ended. It just kept going. Why? Garth? I forget. Bridget? Class? Anyone? Harrison? I don't remember. It's all right. Go ahead. Well, in all previous recessions, once the economy bottomed out and production increased, unemployment decreased. Um, but in the Great Recession, because of new and improved technologies, uh, fewer and fewer workers were required in all sectors. Uh, with so many people forced from their jobs, the traditional economic recovery was impossible. Exactly. By the year 2018, only 15% of the population had jobs. America was divided into two camps, a highly skilled and educated prosperous elite an unemployed, destitute majority. What happened next? Garth. Well, the people who didn't have jobs were very unhappy, and they started making trouble. 
Like they bomb buildings and have riots and kill people and stuff? Right. And that was the beginning of what we now know as, class? The Second American Revolution. Right. And we'll stop there for today. Harrison, can you stay behind? Think you'll manage to graduate this time? Think you'll ever learn how to spell graduate? Keep moving, Morris. Your grades are starting to creep up again, Harrison. I know. I'm sorry. I, I can't help it. Do you want me to see Dr. Eisenstock again? Hmm. I think that would be best. Harrison, what is the first article of the new American Constitution? That all men are not created equal. It's the responsibility of the government to render them so. Indeed. Well, son, you are one of those men, and for all intents and purposes, I am the government. It's a simple procedure, really. We just create electronic blockages at certain points. The brain is forced to reroute messages and information around these blockages. The new routes require double or triple the time. All mental activity is slowed and intelligence drops drastically. Is it risky? Oh, not at all. The surgery is carried out through uh, two tiny holes uh, drilled in the skull. He'll be out of hospital in a couple of days at most. Well, I suppose we should talk it over with his father. Yeah. Mrs. Bergeron, the operation is not optional. Uh, the handicapping guidelines make it mandatory for cases like Harrison's. Oh. Well, maybe we should just try adjusting the band again. I mean, an operation seems so permanent. I'm sorry. No. You have a very special mind, Harrison. Extraordinary, really. Whatever electrical intrusions we place, your brain overcomes them. Great. Oh, Tell me the truth, Harrison. Won't you be just a little relieved when you're just the same as everybody else? It's lonely being smart. Um, in this movie, you hear him talk about bands. Every person in, in this movie has a band around their head. And, and that band is turned up in intensity to interfere with the thought process so that everybody can be rendered equal through handicapping. And... Harrison's brain works too well for the band. Well, I must say this: if you uh, if you don't have concerns or you don't feel a little bit eerie after hearing that one little piece of this movie, your band's turned up too high. You need to set that sucker down a little bit. And I kind of want to talk about the symbolism in this movie before I dissect this scene for you. Whenever you look at something, was you know this was a a screenplay again written somewhere in the 1990s, produced as a movie in 1995. And uh, it was based on a 1961 short story. So you're not going to be 100% accurate with the way things turn out, just how things turn out, so to speak. So to me, the bands that we have today are not physical bands. They're information bands, such as you know wavelength bands like radio and TV and Wi-Fi and Internet. Pop culture has dropped the intelligence of the average person when we should be smarter than ever before. You've heard me say that. There's never been a time where so much information is so available to so many people, and yet we have a dumber society today, I believe, than we did in 1900. Um, the goal in schools in the movie is to make every student equal. 
Well, we call that Common Core today. In fact, the architects of Common Core have said it's intended to remove the advantage some children have due to things like stable families. I mean, you, you can't make this stuff up. When people in this movie, specifically children, are considered to not fit in, they're sent to the doctor for help. And the name of the recession following the Cold War that never really ends is called the Great Recession, which was the name given to the recession of 2008, which I say hasn't ended. And again, this movie was made in 1995. Um, I really recommend you watch the entire film. It's kind of a low-resolution copy that I found on YouTube. Um, I did order a DVD of it. Uh, I found it used. That's another thing. You can't find this thing on DVD. You can't get it on Netflix. You can't get it on Amazon Prime. All you can find are used DVDs and VHS tapes from the 90s. Go figure. Um, but let's kind of talk about this piece here that we just listened to, part of it anyway, about the Cold War, well, the period that ended after the Cold War. Harrison says that's the Great Depression. And she says then, well, what made this recession different from all of the before? And Jeannie, who, who at least is smart enough to know that in the, in the thing, says it never really ended. It just kept going. Teacher, why? Class doesn't know Harrison? Well, in all previous recessions, once the economy bottomed out and production increased, it increased, unemployment decreased. Um, but in the Great Recession, because of new and improved technologies, fewer and fewer workers were required in all sectors. With so many people forced from their jobs, the traditional economic recovery was impossible. Um, Teacher says, exactly, by the year 2018, only 15% of the population had jobs. America was divided into two camps, a highly skilled, prosperous elite and an unemployed, destitute majority. What happened next? Garth. Okay. So I want you to think about this. What if you were to change one number in this entire uh, script from by the year 2018? Because I don't think we'll be to 15% employment only by, by 2018. But what if you change that by 10 years to 2028? How much would you feel right now like this is literally a, a, a prediction of our imminent future? And then think about this. What happened next? Garth raises his hands. Garth, well, the people who didn't have jobs were very unhappy, and they started making trouble like they bombed buildings and ha had riots and killed people and stuff. Think about that. Think about that for a minute. Also think about the scene I've just played for you. It, it's lonely being smart. It's lonely being different. Here's some other, other um, quotes from this movie. John Claxton, who ends up being kind of the guy in charge of the people in charge that you don't know about yet. Television, well, it is the thread that holds together the fabric of our society. Another quote from John Claxton's character. Every time I listen to great music or watch a great film, I know society will never produce another one. Here's a quote from Harrison um, when he's trying to reconcile all of this stuff as he's learning about it. I know the Constitution says the responsibility of government is to render all people equal. Do you, do you feel like that's what's being attempted right now? Rendering all people equal instead of treating all people equally? Okay. John Claxton, again, the head guy of the head guys, speaking about executions on television when he's asked about them, like it seems like there's a lot of them. Oh, the majority of those are reruns. We don't advertise the fact. It would hurt the ratings. And we want people to watch for the deterrent value. Harrison's teacher. 
uh, to Harrison. I'm going to recommend to your parents they take you to see Dr. Eisenstock. You know, four years ago when I started teaching, my pupils had the second highest academic scores in the state. I was very nearly fired. He altered me tremendously. Guys, watch this movie. Those of you with teenage kids, watch this movie with your kids. Make them sit through it. It'll probably take them about 10 minutes to be enforced before they're hooked on it, and they'll watch the whole thing voluntarily. Do yourself a favor. The thing starts out with a song from the from the 50s, lollipop, lollipop. It'll make you want to poke your, your eardrums out with an ice pick, so you can just jump ahead of that and not listen to it. But then once the movie starts, watch it. Um, this movie... You know, people talk about the movie Idiocracy being basically like a prediction of, of where we're, we're headed for. I think this movie is far more accurate of a prediction. Again, if you make allowances for things that are done with symbolism and, and, and done in such a way that they, they make it easier for you to envision what the, what the creator of the storyline is trying to tell you. Um, as good as the short story by Kurt Vardigan is, the, the screenwriter who actually adapted this into, into a, a, a movie script, was a freaking genius, an absolute freaking genius. So with that, I just wanted to kind of put a bug in your ear. you got a weekend coming up. You might be looking for something to do for entertainment, especially while it's hot outside. Put this on. It's on YouTube. Most of you guys have some way you can watch YouTube on the TV, even at home. Uh, again, the picture quality is not the best, but it's not bad. We used it on Apple TV, uh, pulled up the YouTube app, and it looked pretty good on a 55-inch screen for what it is. Uh, with that, let's go ahead and take the first call today. It's on a totally different subject. Hey, Jack. It's Woody from Virginia. Uh, sounds like you're trying to time the market there for the silver and for the stock market and everything. You know, all those markets are rigged. Um, if you just talk somebody out of buying $2,000 worth of silver, uh, Ron Paul and Liberty Report a couple days ago said, would you rather have a stack of fiat paper or a stack of silver coins? You know, it's um, you can't buy monster boxes anymore. Jam bullion right now is out. Uh, Mike Mallory's outfit, goldsilver.com, is out of the monster boxes. And uh, the paper stuff is all rigged. GLD is removed by the bullion banks. It's a fake Wall Street product. It's The goal behind it's not there, or not all of it's there. There's 120 claims in every ounce of gold. So that's the paper claims. And the silver price is set by paper claims, not by the physical silver uh, that you can actually go out and buy. So, man, if you got the cash and you want to buy some and it's available, buy it, stack it up. It's, uh, you know, 10 years from now, you'll probably be glad that you did. Uh, uh, thanks for your show, man. I like it. Uh, it's uh chase my life. Thanks, man. Bye. Okay, without trying to be too hard on this caller, I just want to point out that the bullet point uh, that I have in the show notes for this call is as follows. Can informed advice still be bad advice? Sure, a caller proves it with his own bad advice. This is horrible advice. This advice comes down to paper is worthless, so turn all the paper that you have in excess into silver and stack it. And to do this because even though the silver price looks low, it's not really low. It's all suppressed because the market's rigged with paper. Okay, let's start out with just assuming that everything that the caller said was correct except his conclusion, which I'm really going out there when I say let's assume that because it's not. Okay, And we'll talk about some of the things that aren't true. But if it was true, what you're basically saying is 
they can control the market for silver the same way they control the market for everything else, but buy it anyway because it's fake control. Well, this assumes that one day they, whoever they are, and generally people that give this advice have no idea who the they are. Uh, in the words of Willie Nelson, if I could figure out who they were, I would have killed them a long time ago. Um, but they one day will fail to be able to control this anymore, and you will have this windfall of profits, and everybody with cash will lose. <sighs> Again, this assumes that that day is coming soon. Because there's a whole lot of now between then and now. All right? There's a whole lot of, of time in, in there where you have to make a living, where they, whoever they are, can manipulate that market even lower. And he says it sounds like I'm trying to time the market. Well, on some levels, I do time markets. And if you don't time markets, you do dumb, stupid shit. Like you keep buying something when it's really high, or you, you think you have a buying opportunity when you're nowhere near the true opportunity that's coming in the future, or you sit and take a punch in the face because you say, hey, I'm in it for the long haul, and you watch your the value of your portfolio get its ass kicked. Um, you know, Conversely, my basic advice this week was try to tough it out if you didn't get out of the market when we told you to and, and your, your mutual funds and wait because there'll be rebound. Today I'm looking at the market up 343 points. I'm seeing that since this uh, this big drop started about the uh, 19th, about half of the losses have been recouped at this point. And again, John Pugliano's advice and my advice with the stock market this year as to why to move your assets into cash wasn't because the market's going to crash into oblivion. Ah, everybody will die. Because if we thought we knew that was going to be the, the result of through the rest of the year, we'd be telling you to go in on, on hedge funds and going short on things and things like that. And instead, we're just saying, you know, we don't know what's going to happen. Happen, but there's no upside, so get your money out of the risk. Well, a lot of you, I think, I think are going to get an opportunity to take that opportunity again. And if you if, if you can tough it out just a little more, I think you'll see more recovery before it makes sense to do that. But you have to decide how much profit you have and when to take it. You should have took it two months ago, but it is what it is. Okay. Uh, in fact, you should have took it four months ago, but at least two months ago, John and I were both telling you the same thing. Now, how does that relate over the silver market? Okay, here's the thing. There's no shortage of silver. There's no shortage of silver. Is, uh, is Jam Bullion sold out of monster boxes of silver? Yeah, but you can order them right now, and they say that they'll, they'll be shipping them to you around September 10th, and they're even willing to take the current price on the silver for it with that in mind because they have their orders into the mint. Monster boxes always start to dry up late in the year because a lot of investors choose to stack silver eagles and buy them, and we're well into 2015 at this point, so a lot of that stuff's come from the mint to suppliers and been sold off at this point. Though so if you really wanted monster boxes, there's a lot of places you can get them right now that are shipping them right now. Atmex, who I beat up on pretty hard when I compare them to Jam Bullion, because Jam's got better service and pricing, does have them. Maybe maybe Atmex has them because uh, Jam sells them for less and gives you better service with them. But it's not like you can't get a monster box of silver right now. So that's informed but incorrect. It's ill-formed opinion. Um This this kind of thinking, well, Ron Paul says, let me tell you something about Ron Paul. Ron Paul has disappointed me immensely, and I no longer would take Ron Paul's advice on money for shit. Because Ron Paul's now aligned himself with Porter Stansberry, who's one of the biggest scam artists, rip-off pieces of crap, and most often wrong people I've ever seen in the last 10 years on the Internet predicting things to happen, like Obama running for a third term, for instance. Yeah. 
endofamerica3.com. Remember that one. Within six months, the entire currency is going to collapse. That was three and a half years ago. That domain now redirects to Ron Paul's video. I'm disgusted with Ron Paul for aligning himself with a sleaze merchant like that. I don't really have any way to explain it other than Ron Paul ain't the guy I thought he was. That's the only, and I, it hurts me to say that because it was like there's this one guy. This one guy that served in our government that actually did the right things for the right reason that we could trust. Sorry. I guess that ain't true. I guess it makes more sense to not trust anybody in government. Because if you're aligning yourself with Porter Stansberry, I don't trust you, so I no longer trust Ron Paul. But silver. Silver and gold are investments, yes. But you should not overestimate the value that they have. That's why I always recommend 5 to 10% of your net worth in a wealth assurance program using hard assets like silver and gold. Not 50%, not 70%. I, I never recommend that. Here's why. Let's say silver went up 20%. With hard metal, you wouldn't get much of that 20% when you sold your silver. Between the difference in spot price and, and what have you, I mean, silver has to go way up. Silver's a silver's the long haul investment. Gold is a long haul investment. If you want to if you want to make money with silver and gold and trading it, you don't buy silver and gold. You you buy the same paper all these evil people you say do it do. Well, there's you know there's ten ten paper claims on every you know ten ten ounces in claims on every ounce. Do do you, do you really know that, or did somebody that's trying to sell you gold tell you that? Um, there's no doubt the silver market's manipulated. There's no doubt the gold market's manipulated. There's no doubt the Dow Jones is, is manipulated. There's no doubt the S&P 500 is manipulated. There's no doubt all of these markets are manipulated. But if you think one of them special and magical, and, and, and little, little unicorns are going to come and, and, and lay gold eggs under your freaking Christmas tree, and you're going to be wealthy while the rest of the world is poor because you bought gold and silver when everybody else was too stupid to do it, uh, it's, it's probably as likely to happen as that, that unicorn showing up and, and, and crapping gold eggs under your tree. There is a place for everything in our investing and in our wealth planning. And there's never a place for anything occupying all the space. Right now, um, unless you're leveraged into the market and you've recently lost money and you've got it in you to tough it out and you got to make your own decision on this and you think some, you can get some more recovery before you bail, my, my personal position is the best place for your money right now, for now, not forever, for God's sakes, not forever, is in freaking cash. Oh, the dollar's being devalued. Yeah, well, send me all your dollars. I'll tell you what, I'm so sick of that. Any one of you that thinks the dollar is worthless, I have a box that you can put all your worthless dollars in. I want you to come to my house. I want you to stop listening to these freaking scam artists and sleaze merchants that are trying to get your money for their silver by telling you your money's worthless. I want you to start thinking at a little bit higher level. This is the same song and dance these people have been singing for decades. And the only people that really made money in silver are when all the suckers bought too much of it too fast, drove it over $50, and they shorted it. This is about a commodity, not magic. Silver and gold are not money. They're commodities. They're commodities that can be used as money. Money is an agreement between individuals. Money is an agreement between individuals. I value silver. I invest in silver. I think you should too. But the kind of advice you're hearing here is absolutely repeated 
from marketing designed to get you to part with your dollars for someone else's silver while they tell you your dollars are worthless and tell you where to send them to. So if you want to do that and your dollars are truly worthless, instead of exchanging them for silver, just send them all to me and I'll keep them in a box called worthless dollars and I'll buy all kinds of worthless things like food and housing and energy and electricity and farmland with them. I'm just saying. It's not that owning silver and gold is bad. It's that this mentality makes you do stupid things without actually thinking about, yes, timing. With investing Timing is always of key importance. Let's go ahead and uh, take another call. Hey, Jack. It's uh, Survivor here. And, uh, hey, um, I was wondering, Puerto Rico is not part of walking to freedom, but it's part of the United States kind of uh, being a colony or something. Uh, I guess you can live there as a citizen of the United States, and um, it, uh, the cost of living is, is somewhat less, and um, you can grow... A lot of fruits and vegetables eat around. I, maybe you could sail there with a sailboat or something, go back and forth. Uh, so uh, I just want to ask you your thoughts on, on, on that. Uh, okay, thanks. Yeah, I, I wouldn't fault anybody for moving to Puerto Rico uh, if that worked out for them understanding and knowing all the things that pertain to this. Now, first of all, Puerto Rico is a territory of the United States, a U.S. territory. Uh, and that means any United States citizen is free to go there, free to live there, free to work there. You can just go to Puerto Rico, and people from Puerto Rico can just come here. Um, members of uh, the, the territory of Puerto Rico can serve in the United States Armed Services. I went through basic training with several guys that were uh, at our basic training in Fort Jackson that were uh, going to then go on to their advanced training and then go back to Puerto Rico as part of the Puerto Rican National Guard. And they were training with U.S. regular Army in South Carolina. So Puerto Rico is like almost a state. That's the best way to think of uh, a U.S. territory, almost a state. And they have a little bit of more autonomy than a state, but not as much as you might think. Um, if you go there, you're going to pay U.S. federal income tax, so you're not going to escape that. So if you wanted to escape tax burdens, uh, you'd be much better off in a country like Costa Rica or Panama if you're going to go to a country with the, the culture and climate of a Puerto Rico. As far as um, growing things, it, it is definitely in the tropics. I have to tell you that I considered it myself because the ease of doing it, it's really easy. Uh, yes, prices are lower, not as low as you would think. It's, it's not like you can go down there and buy yourself a 10-acre farm with a three-bedroom farmhouse on it and live relatively comfortably with air conditioning for like $50,000 or something like that. You, you might save, you know, 10 to 20% on comparably priced land in many areas of the United States, significantly over New Jersey or New York or someplace else where things have just gotten stupid. But, you know, compared to Texas or Arkansas or Florida, you're not going to save that much money. Um, what you will find if you investigate Puerto Rico are two very concerning things that, that, that hold me off of ever recommending that anybody go there. Uh, the first is the crime rate, uh, is, is very high. It is, it is far higher than, than, you know, rural areas in, in Costa Rica, uh, Panama, um, Ecuador, etc. Uh, it's significantly higher. And the next thing is the country's bankrupt or the territory's bankrupt, however you want to look at it. 
Um, their constitution is enlightened enough not to let them go into debt too much, but uh, they're in it anyway, and they can't pay it, and they can't borrow more to pay it because of their constitution. So they are basically in dire straits economically right now. Um, there are an awful lot of government services in Puerto Rico uh, beyond what you you'd get, let's say, in Florida or Georgia or Texas or, or, or New Jersey. Um, and those services will, will begin to fail rapidly as uh, Puerto Rico is forced to deal with its economic shortfall. And it has no choice. Again, it is bound by its constitution to, to rectify and deal with that shortfall. And if, if you think there's high crime there now, wait a later. So that's my issues with Puerto Rico. I think it's a beautiful country. Um, I'm sure you can find pockets of it where you'll be relatively left alone, but anytime you got to go into a city or a town to, uh, to buy stuff, especially when you kind of stand out as not belonging there, well, you're a target for the crime that's already there. I mean, that's, that's kind of a way to look at it. Now, there are parts of Puerto Rico that are very tourist-centric, very nice, very upscale, just as expensive as anywhere in the United States, gated communities, et cetera, where I'm sure you're relatively safe, as safe as you'd be, you know, anywhere here, like where I live right now. But as you try to move out into the places to live the life you're talking about, I think it's going to get a little harder. So if anybody, you know, has any... Opposing views that are informed, not because, you know, a website about retirement told you, but because you live there or have lived there. And there are places on, in Puerto Rico with affordable property out of the cities where if I move there, I have no more likely uh, to be uh, a victim of a crime than I do, let's say, in Fort Worth, Texas. Let me know. I'm open to it. But right now, that's my opinion. And it's been formed by research and looking at crime rates, etc. Uh, let's take another one. Hi, Jack. This is John in Illinois. Wondering if you know of a breed of grass that grows really, really slow. We're expected to keep everything manicured and okay-ish looking. Doesn't have to be perfect for it incorporated. But uh, eh, just wondering what to throw in the front yard for grass. Cause it seems pointless to mow it every week. Thanks for the show. Well, there's a lot of things at play here. The first is what's there now, because whatever you put down is going to have to compete with it, and you're either going to have to mechanically interfere with the, the growing grass, you know, disc it or turn it or plow it or something, or or cut the sod up and flip it and then add something down, uh, or you're going to have to put something down there that will out-compete it, and that has a lot to do with what it is, whether that out-compete thing is an option. Um, but with that said, you have to figure that part out for yourself because I don't know what's there now. Is it dirt or is it, you know, a really rapidly growing high grass that's causing you this problem? It is a little interesting to me that you say we're expected to keep everything manicured and at least decent looking. Those are two different things to me, even though you're unincorporated. So I'm guessing there's an HOA or some kind of thing that's causing this problem because if you're unincorporated, in Illinois, I don't know if it means what it means in Texas, but right here where I'm unincorporated, I could have a damn tree growing through my garage and no one could say anything about it. Not that I would do it, but, you know, I could. So uh, there's some problem there. That, and what do you mean by expected? Your neighbors expect it or your neighbors can do something about it. So I also think about things like that, try to be a good neighbor and all, but you can expect a lot out of me. But if if I don't want to do it and you don't have any recourse and I don't think it makes sense, you can expect in one hand and shit in the other, and I promise you the one you shit in is going to fill up first. So just a little, you know, 
thought process there. The next thing is, you know, do, do animals play a role in this potentially for you? You can put anything that's a basic grazer on that property if you have fencing to keep them in or whatever. For instance, ducks or a small flock of geese, and you'll do very little mowing. We have, you know, it's dry, and it hasn't rained much this summer once all that rain went away. But, you know, I hear the neighbors mowing every three or four weeks, and we haven't mowed in two and a half months. Why? Even where we have irrigation, the ducks have kept things in check for us. There's a few places that's a little high, but it's not enough that anybody would probably complain about it unless you lived in a subdivision with an HOA. So those are some other things to think about. Now, is what you can plant um, probably your best bet for grass is going to be a blend of creeping fescues. So, you know, I'm saying get four or five or six different varieties of different creeping fescues and make a mix of that. And that is going to, you know, creeping fescues don't grow real tall. Eventually, uh, they'll, they'll kind of come up a bit, but overall, they stay pretty low. And you would probably end up, even though, even during your, your highest season of growth, needing to mow every two to three weeks, which is a lot less than every week. And you live in a climate with good rainfall and moderate summers where you get a lot of growth of your grass. Uh, and, and most of Illinois has really good soils, especially if we're only judging grass growing. So that would be probably the best grass. The best thing you could add to grass that would make it nice and pretty, uh, especially from a distance, that would be of high value from a forage standpoint, and for bee forage as well, is white clover, either New Zealand or Dutch white or both. Uh, a lot of the other clovers do get pretty high, but New Zealand... Uh, and, and, uh, and Dutch white, you know, high is 10 inches. That's really high. That stuff grows very prostrate. So that would be another thing. Bird's foot trefoil, uh, is another, uh, it's clover-like, and it grows low and it spreads out. Uh, so bird's foot trefoil, uh, coupled with clover and a fescue mix would give you a very resilient lawn. Uh, it would be very low maintenance. There would be a lot less uh, mowing. And if you ever did add animals, you'd have a, a pretty good you know, option there uh, for those animals to graze. And, and you probably wouldn't have to mow much at all if you were able to do that. But I don't know whether you want to do that or not. It's very important when I say fescue. There's tall fescues like Kentucky 31, for instance, and there's creeping fescues. Creeping Creeping. Just think about creeping along the ground. You do not want something tall, so don't buy something uh, with with tall in it. If you were in the south, I'd say something like Raleigh St. Augustine, uh, which is a very creeping, broad-leafed grass. is a great grass for the south, and as long as you have rainfall, but it will not do well in your climate. I don't even think I'm not sure, but I don't even think it'll survive. Broadleaf plantain will do very well uh, in your climate as well, and it, because it's such a broadleaf plant and it gets up to about you know eight inches and kind of flops down. It, it kind of competes with the grass, and it gives you a, a good amount of integration. That's hard to find a lot of seed for. Like You won't be able to go out and buy five pounds of, of broadleaf plantain, but it's considered a weed by people that don't know any better, and there's a lot of it around where you live, and if you just go out at the right time and look for the big seed heads, you can go out there and collect a whole bunch of it and then just let it dry and then just put that down uh, as you head toward winter, and it'll it'll uh, stratify over the winter, and you'll have plenty of it coming up uh, in the spring. That's another big note here. You need to be thinking about your timing of when to seed this stuff. Um, putting a lot of seed down right before your first snowfall might actually work out better than you'd think. 
because it's going to compress a lot of your litter or your dead grasses on top of it. It's going to seal it with moisture, and it's going to sit down there, and it'll kind of go into a, 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 a stasis until it's ready to come up in the spring. Uh, some of your grasses, like your your, fe uh, your creeping fescues, I wouldn't do that with. I would seed those in your early spring at the appropriate time. But a lot of these other things, like, like plantain, Uh, and clovers and things like that. They'll do just fine sitting through uh, winter. They may even grow a little bit and go dormant. Uh, they can handle it. They grow like weeds in your climate, including the clover. So that's the best I can do for you. Uh, let's go and take another one. Hi, Jack. This is Ted from California. I have a question uh, regarding the uh, importance and uh, best use of copyright and trademark protections. And this is in the context of Uh, someone wanting to establish a small business, and that would entail things like a website, podcast, training program with training materials, uh, probably a book, <clears throat> and uh, lastly, a brand name. Uh, to establish a brand name at some point would be ideal. Uh, your thoughts on this would be appreciated. I don't have any experience in the area, so I'd uh, appreciate what you think about all that. Thanks a lot. Bye. Um, when it comes to small business, 95% of the crap you just talked about doesn't matter, at least in the beginning. It really doesn't. Um, no one is going to be out copying your training materials uh, a week after you, you, you go into business. And if somebody ever starts doing it, you're probably wealthy enough and successful enough at that point that you got a team of lawyers to go out there and kill them. Seriously. Um, most of what you're talking about are just things that you let get in the way of getting shit done and getting your business off the ground. You get a business off the ground, you prove that it's valid, and you prove that it works, and then you know what? Uh, then maybe you'll have something worth protecting, but right now you don't have Jack Diddley Square all crap, so there's no real reason about it. Let's kind of go through the individual things that you asked about your website. Um, There's, there's basic laws against plagiarism. So what you put on your website has inherent protections to begin with. Uh, so, I, I mean, I've never once, in, in, in being part of building hundreds of websites, uh, done anything other than put the word copyright on the bottom of a website. I mean, that's just, you know, common sense. Uh, branding. Uh, You know, if you if you set up a, a business entity, you know, Joe Blow Inc. in in the state of Texas, then there's not going to be any other Joe Blow Inks in the state of Texas because uh, the state corporation uh, group won't let them do it, right? Your comptroller or whoever handles that for your state will say there's going to be one of those. Um, you can overthink this stuff to the point where you get paralyzed by it and you waste time and energy on stuff that no one cares about but you. When it comes to certain branding things, though, like a logo that you're going to make a key part of merchandise or something like that, um, you may want to, to explore some, some trademark uh, things. If you're building something that um, is unique in its physical characteristics or its function in a way that's never been done before, then you want to look into patent. Because sometimes the patent's worth more than the product if it can be applied to other products. This is, it's, this is a discussion with a patent attorney, an honest one that won't lie to you and get you to do a patent on something that can't be patented or doesn't need to be patented. 
a book. Well, a book has inherent copyright protections, but you can actually see to that for about a hundred bucks when you publish your book. And just about all the self-publishing platforms have kind of turnkey ways to do that for you. So that's not really an issue either. And you don't have a book right now, so you don't need to worry about your book being plagiarized. When's the last time you heard about a big court case where somebody plagiarized a book? As far as people copying your material and distributing it freely, it's going to happen. You can't stop it. You can yell and scream and gnash your teeth. But we live in the Internet age where everything is copied, and if your thing isn't being copied, nobody cares about it, so you should be happy when it's copied. And you should design and build everything with the intent that when somebody copies it, it's going to come back and promote for you what you're doing. So basically, I think the overall crux of your answer is don't worry about it right now unless you have a very specific place to worry about it. And definitely don't worry about it and what you're going to eventually do because you ain't done anything yet. So do all the other things you need to to get to the point where you're doing the thing where you do need to worry about it. Again, the book. Um, I know I might sound like I'm being hard on people today, but I'm not really being hard on you. I'm just telling you that... It is generally the case that people that say they're going to start a business or, or build something look for reasons to not just get on with it. And this is a common one. You know, I, somebody might steal my idea. Nobody's going to steal your idea. Nobody's going to steal your idea because, first of all, usually when people say that, your idea is not your idea. Your idea has already been had a hundred times. Somebody's probably already doing it. If nobody's doing what you're doing, you're either a genius or you're going to have a hard road to hold. You really are. When no one's doing something in this day and age, unless it's a brand new physical product invention or something like that, if no one's in your, like if you say, well, who would your competitors be? I don't have any. That's usually bad. That's not always bad. It's usually bad. It means there's no market. You're going to have to go create one out of thin air, right? And that's tougher than you think it is. So in the end, I would shelve all this. I would shelve all this until you know exactly what it is you're trying to protect, And then once you know that, I'm trying to protect this piece of content, I'm trying to protect this logo, what have you, okay? Then you have to ask yourself the following questions. Why? Why? Is it out of, like, some sort of ego? Or is there a legitimate financial risk to my company by not doing it? So when we get past the why, then the next question is, well, what protections for this type of thing, if any, are available? And then the next question is, once this protection's in place... What upside is there to it? What, what value does that bring to me? Does, what, what potential profit streams does this either protect or allow? So if it's a patent, for instance, Emerson Knives, uh, Ernie Emerson came up with what's called the wave feature, which I, this is an example of a patent I don't think should exist. I, I really don't. I don't think a notch in the back of a pocket knife should be patentable. But it is. I'm, I've got a, um, right in my hand right now, above Karambit. Uh, made by Fox Knives, that has the wave feature, and it's got this little thing that's pretty good for opening a beer bottle. Uh, but what it also does is it snags on your pocket when you pull it out, and it opens the knife automatically. That's called the wave feature, and it is patented. In fact, it is patented uh, by, again, Emerson Knives and Fox Knives, who, uh, in fact, Emerson patent. I'll even give you the number right off the back of the knife, 5878500. That's the patent number issued to Ernie Emerson and Emerson Knives for that. So Fox, when they make this knife with his little patented hook on it, which again I think is ridiculous that this can be patented, um, pays Emerson Knives a fee in return for being able to use that patented feature. 
So even if Ernie Emerson never sells another knife in his life, which is doubtful because he makes a great knife, um, every time somebody uses that feature for the duration of his patent, he has money coming in. So that is an example of because you could do it, even if I don't think the fact that the patent office thinks this is patentable, it makes sense to do because it's an income stream and it's a unique identifier. Now, there's a bunch of ways to get around this, though. There's all kinds of knives that open on Pocket Draw. They use different things that don't violate the patent. They might violate the spirit of the patent, but they don't violate the legal protections of the patent. So in that case, it might have just been better if... Uh, if he had basically done an open source trademark that just said basically anybody can use it, but you have to acknowledge it when you use it. Because that might have got him a lot more traction than just one company paying him for the rights to use his wave feature and everybody else doing things like bolting a little piece of steel on there that does the exact same thing just as well. By the way, when Ernie invented this, I said it opens beer bottles. That's what he was trying to do. He's trying to invent a pocket knife that would also open your 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 you know beer bottles that don't twist off for you. And uh, the guy that was working on it said, "You know what this thing's doing when you pull it out of your pocket?" So he did it by accident. He fell into it. So it's not always the case that people come up with these things that are patentable or geniuses. Sometimes you just fall into it. So that's an example of where it makes sense because you can make money with it and you can protect an income stream with it. Most small businesses. All you're doing is wasting time and money that could be better spent building something worth protecting. Let's take another one. Hi, Jack. This is Megan from Vermont. Got a question about life insurance, whether or not we get term life or accidental death and disbursement or a combination of both. Background, my husband and I are about 37 years of age. We're expecting our first child in October and are uncertain about which life insurance policy we should get. Thanks kindly, and I uh, hope to hear my question on the air. Thank you very much for everything you do. This is one of those places where you have to search for something that sometimes seems more rare than an honest politician or an honest insurance salesman to help you make this decision, but odds are you can find one. And I, I would want an insurance agent that is an insurance uh, broker for a product like life insurance. I do not want, really, to talk to my state farm agent, even though I keep them for property and uh, for my automotive insurance. Uh, they, they do not make sense to, for life insurance to me because I can get the same protection for less money elsewhere. And with life insurance, that's what you want. You want the lowest-priced product that does the job. There ain't a life insurance company in business that's, that's in danger of going broke because it's a good product to be selling, and they're really good at what they do. Um, you mentioned uh, the death and dis I think you said distribution or something like that. It's death and dismemberment is is the accidental death and dismemberment insurance. It's really cheap, and insurance agents often sell you on a, a huge looking amount of protection when you have a very low underlying amount of protection by saying things to you like you and your husband are so young. If anything happens to you in the next 10 years, it's most likely that it'll be an accident. Well, statistically speaking, the most likely thing to kill you in the next 10 years is probably an illness like cancer. Um, but it is, it is definitely possible uh, that you can be killed in an accident. It happens. It happened to Michael Adams Scout that we just talked about, you know, about a month ago on the show, who was a really great guy. He's in his early 50s and, and, you know, killed in a car accident. So it does happen. Uh, there are over 30,000 vehicular uh, fatalities a year. There's people that fall down the stairs. There's all types of ways that people get killed by accidents. 
So because it's cheap, it's often a good addition to an insurance policy. But the way a lot of insurance agents will 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 use this is they'll they'll do it as two separate things and and sell you on both of them. And in your head, you're getting let's say five hundred thousand dollars worth of insurance, but your underlying life insurance is a hundred thousand dollars, four hundred thousand dollar. Death and dismemberment, and then it's usually like, okay, so that's four hundred thousand dollars for for death uh, in an accident. The dismemberment comes into things like losing hands or feet or whatever. And a lot of times, when people read a dismemberment insurance policy, they think like, well, if I can't use my hand, no. A lot of times, they're, they're written with loopholes, stupid shit. Like if you're if there's you know more than fifty percent of your hand is still there, it's not a dismemberment. So and they usually pay out at half the value. So four hundred thousand dollars of of death would pay up to two hundred thousand dollars of dismemberment. What you're looking for, if you want to insure yourself, if you're a survivor, is long term disability insurance, which can be quite expensive. But in some instances, depending on your income, et cetera, makes sense. So that's a that's a shelf thing for a different day. So just forget the dismemberment. It, it, it's almost useless most of the time. The accidental death. Is, is usable and useful when properly structured. And the way that it usually makes sense is it's v- usually very inexpensive to take either term or whole life, I prefer term, I'll talk about that in a second, and add what's called double indemnity for accidental death. What this means is you buy $500,000 worth of term life insurance, but it pays double if the, de- if the death is due to accident. Because there is a significant risk that if you do die when you're 25 years old before you're 50 from accident, a lot of times this makes sense, especially in shorter-term term policies, and especially, absolutely especially, when it's so stupid cheap. If you have a policy that goes up by 20 bucks a year to double the death benefit in the case of an accident, which many times is the case, it's you know two, three, four dollars a month. This makes sense, and I would advise it for most people that are younger because I'm not saying it's the most likely cause of death, but it's one of the most it's one of the most likely causes, right? Um, you know, there's because let me explain you what what accidental death means and what it doesn't mean. You're in a car, you're driving down the street, car goes off the road, you crash into a ditch, your car bursts into flames, and you die. Accidental death. Ding, ding, ding. Your beneficiary gets the, the accidental death additional benefit. Um, you're walking down the street. Somebody walks up to you and shoots you in the head with a gun. That is not an accident. That's not an accident. I won't keep going because this could get really long to a whole show on insurance and it's boring as hell. But uh, So you have to understand what accident means. And often, if you're engaged in any kind of high-risk activities, skydiving, motorcycle competitions, things like that, uh, these companies will make you sign a waiver that say that you're, you, you know, your, your beneficiaries don't get anything if you die doing that. Or, your, yes, your underlying coverage, your basic life insurance will be covered, and they'll do what's called rate your policy. That's a fine way of saying charge you a little bit more money. But the accidental death benefit, the double indemnity, does not apply if you're motorcycle racing and you get an accident because it's not really an accident because you chose and every policy is different you need to have this conversation with your insurgent agent okay so if you can add the accidental death for very little money to whatever policy makes the most sense for you anyway then it often makes sense to do it and i've known in several situations where it's been very beneficial to the to the survivors 
when I was a kid, my uh, my father had a friend named Dave. Dave was my personal mentor with snakes. He's the guy that got me into it. He's the guy that taught me to work with venomous snakes when I was eight, nine years old. Uh, so his death was, uh, even though I hadn't seen him in a couple of years, was, was was pretty hard for me. I was in my teens when we found out. Well, my father had loaned Dave a significant amount of money, and Dave couldn't pay him back. And my dad said, well, get to it when you get to it. And Dave felt bad about that and said, I want to make sure if something ever happens to me uh, that you're paid back. So he signed over a life insurance policy he had to my father as a beneficiary. And uh, about three years later, he still hadn't paid my father back, and uh, he was in a car that was being driven by a friend who ran into a telephone pole, and uh, Dave didn't survive the, the wreck. And uh, he left behind three children, two to one woman and one to another. And uh, it ended up very uh, fortuitous, I think, that my father was the person there because uh, the, the lady with the two children, the first two children, wanted everything for herself to take care of the children with, which was never what Dave wanted because, well, let's just say that marriage ended very, very poorly. And uh, I won't say anything bad about this person because it's been... 25 years, and there's no point to it, but let's say she wasn't a good person. So, in fact, and a third child hadn't even been born yet. He left behind a pregnant uh, girlfriend. So what my father did was he took the money that Dave owed him, he took the balance of the money, and he put it into trusts for the three children that they could gain access to when they were 25 years of age. Very safe, stable Investments and at the time you could you could put stuff like that into investments that made five six seven percent um, over the length of that time and then release that to cash and then at twenty five those children could choose to do whatever they wanted to do with it he he just decided to do that because he felt by twenty five they'd have enough of their head together and that would be something their father left for them and he had a double indemnity for accidental death and that meant that he left a lot more behind for his children now I would hope that if if somebody in this audience leaves behind life insurance, that it's under better circumstances than that. But that's just one individual example that I know of where that double indemnity was worth well more uh, than it than was paid for it. But the dismemberment, uh, I've seen several different places where I've read the particulars of them, and you know your odds of, of, of ever being paid money on the dismemberment part is often less than, let's say, your odds of... Uh, you know, winning a couple thousand bucks in one of those scratch-off lottery tickets. And I guess that's a good thing. You know, nobody wants to lose a hand or a foot or an eye. But that's usually what it comes down to, hand, foot, and eye in the dismemberment. And it's, it, it, I think it's sold in a really misleading way by insurance companies. I'm not saying every policy is that way. I'm saying many I've looked at are. As to term versus whole, I really recommend term because it's the most affordable and uh, I, I think that the only real value in a whole life insurance policy is for two things. One, final expenses, which I think are better uh, taken care of by putting money aside for that and uh, making sure the money's there when you're old. Because you have enough insurance to do that and more when you're young. You let your insurance basically expire. We, Dorothy and I are carrying term to 90. If I live to 90, you know, they win, so to speak, and it's very inexpensive. Uh, we bought it when we were very young, and we're paying almost nothing for it today. I mean, we'd pay five, six times what we're paying for it now. Um, there is a, 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 a very little case for whole life. About the only way that I think whole life makes sense is if you're very wealthy, 
you are going to leave behind a lot of money that's going to be subject to inheritance tax. And most of the people that listen to this show, you will never leave behind any wealth that's subject to inheritance tax, despite what talk radio tells you. You, do, you, you just don't have enough. You don't have $2 million in assets to leave behind. Um, and if you do, you probably won't by the time you die if you live to a, a ripe old age, because you'll spend a lot of that money. But what one thing you can do with very wealthy, very affluent individuals is take a significant portion of their wealth and move it into whole life instruments that are specifically designed for that type of person to circumvent inheritance taxes so that when they die, it's paid as a death benefit, which is non-taxable. And that's a very high-end conversation to have with the type of financial advisor. If you have one, you already know these things. And if you don't have one, you probably don't qualify to get one because if your net worth isn't about $3 million, none of them will talk to you. And that's just the honest answer there. So I'd say term life with the accidental death uh, rider if it's so inexpensive that it makes sense to do. Otherwise, you might just be better off buying more underlying base insurance and try to find an honest insurance agent um, that when you bring up the things I just said to you, they'll say, yeah, that that's true. If you want to know how I know this much about insurance, I did sell insurance for a very short period of time in my life. I found the tactics of the insurance agency that I was working with and the industry as a whole to be despicable. I was absolutely miserable doing it, even though I was very good at it. Uh, so I quit and went off to do other things. Let's take another call. Hey, Jack. This is Mark in western Kentucky. I had a question for you about using municipal compost. The background is our county sells compost made from the products of the wastewater treatment plant and the municipal leaf collection. I'm a little bit skeptical about it, but a colleague here at work uses it for his raised bed gardening and swears by it. He says if they mix it, let it cook, turn it, and make sure there's nothing that in there that shouldn't be in there. Now, I'm just starting on my my homestead adventure here, and I could use, I could see myself using it for cheap mulch gardening. Any concerns look for? Let's say you, Jack. Thank you. Well, your friend's advice is reassuring since he uses it in his raised bed garden, he still recommends it. And because the, the, the danger in a lot of this stuff is uh, persistent herbicide residue um, that will, you know, show up really quick when you use it in gardens because you'll have poor results with things like tomatoes and beans and you'll know real quick something's not right. And I have seen some compost, whether it's from municipal sources or otherwise, that definitely has a persistent herbicidal residue. Uh, the way you can test for this is pretty easy. Take some beans and plant them in a pot of good, well, you know, good quality potting soil. Plant two pots like that. Um, drain some water. Put put a, a sample of this compost in a bucket with some holes in it and wet it down till water comes out the bottom, you've got compost tea, which, if anything, should kickstart the hell out of those beans. And water one pot every day with a little bit of the compost tea uh, and, 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 and some water, so about half strength, and then water the other side with just water. If you notice a significant um, problem with that that's getting the compost tea, you probably have a persistent herbicide in your compost. And you can do that with straw, you can do that with hay, anything that you're worried about having persistent herbicide in there, simply by filtering water through it and using that as irrigation water on a legume with a test subject next to it, you know, you got to have a test subject. Well, it died. Well, did it die because you don't know what you're doing? Did it die because you overwatered it? But if you have two buckets and one's booming and the other one's dying, and, and one's being watered with this water that's been tainted, 
uh, at the same amount, you're giving them both a, a cup of water a day, then you know something's wrong with that. Um, with municipal compost, it's generally not as huge a deal because, you know, they're usually doing what they say. They're using uh, sewage waste, uh, which kind of grosses people out, but in the end, it's, it's compost. And things like leaf and branch and, and shreddings and stuff like that. It's when grass clippings start getting involved. And they, that's what you need to determine by going down to that facility and taking a look at what's coming in there. If you have large amounts of grass clippings and you live in a, a city or a municipality where a lot of that grass is coming from HOA-type true green chemlon lawns, that's where you're going to have a lot of that persistent herbicide being used. You don't spray herbicide on trees. Okay? And you don't generally you know, dump your Roundup down your, your toilet bowl. Now, some things do go into the sewage system that you just really can't get rid of with composting, like pharmaceuticals are flushed in droves. So that's a concern. Um, but in the end, it's probably no more risky than using municipal water. So my suggestion with any municipal compost is to test it, um, and not just in a lab and a soil test says, you know, it's safe, but test it by actually using it on something that's highly sensitive to herbicides, uh, and other contaminants like beans, any legume. And, and if it, if it tests out okay, uh, then it's probably safe to use. And you're not going to probably want to fill a raised bed to the top with it. This is something you put, you know, a half inch on every year as an organic amendment. And so that's the kind of way that you'd use compost. You'd be far better off making your own, uh, or doing it with a worm bin and making your own, or finding a good quality commercial product and maybe paying a little bit more for it. When I lived in Hot Springs, Arkansas, I used a lot of municipal compost because it was free if I loaded it myself. And that was just too cheap not to use. If they had been selling it for like 15 bucks, which if they loaded it for you, that's what it was, and there had been a good quality commercial producer that I knew was safe to use down the road selling it for 25, I'd probably pay the difference. Uh, right now, I think I pay about $32 for two yards of compost for very well-made compost. And if I had an area where they did municipal compost where you're using sewer sludge and it was, you know, half that, I'd pay the money. If it was free, I'd think about using it, especially in my fields and stuff like that where it's not high-intensity production. And that's where I think the best value in municipal compost is, is building up areas of really poor quality, low-fertility, sorry-ass soil into something uh, over time, more of a pasture, lawn, garden for your garden, or pasture and lawn versus a garden. For your gardens, you know, most of us are growing, you know, six, eight, ten raised beds. A, a really high quality bagged product at one bag a bed at ten dollars a bag is probably all you need in a season. Or make your own, which is the best choice. Uh, with that, let's go ahead and take another one. Hello, Jack. This is Scott from Missouri. I had a uh, plant question for you. I recently had uh, about 400 feet of uh, water line installed uh, at some property I have here, and uh, it's sort of sinking in and, and doing its normal settling thing. I've, I've planted, you know, thrown out a bunch of uh, cover crop seed and stuff like that to at least uh, capture this one spot in something kind of beneficial to the soil. Uh, but wondered if you thought there was something else I could be planting into this depression um, you know, it's going to obviously carry water and stuff downhill. It does run pretty much straight downhill, uh, not not very steeply, but it does run downhill. Um, and uh, wondered if I could take advantage of this, you know, now 
uh, depression in the ground running about 400 feet uh, down to some garden beds and uh, do something kind of useful with that, plant into it, um, I don't know, dam it up or something, you know, this, anything that might be, uh, uh, you know, c- come to mind for taking advantage of this new feature out here uh, in addition to the water that is running through it itself. So anyway, thank you. I appreciate it, and I look forward to hearing any of your thoughts. So what you actually have isn't an advantage. You have a, a disadvantage right now. You have an erosion point uh, where water is cutting a channel due to the depression where the settle of the trench line is. And what you really need to do is backfill that, bring in some earth, some material, uh, some dirt, and backfill that and, 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 and get something in there. What you want to plant in there is something with really aggressive, fast-growing uh, hair roots that will hold and bind the soil together until the, the natural grasses and things like that can grow back over it. Because one thing you don't want to do is plant any kind of bush or, or vine right on top of that, that line because it's probably going to grow into and, and bust your line. And if you ever just have a natural break and you're trying to fix a water line that's directly under tree roots, we all know that's a pain in the butt if we've ever done it before. So... My, my best advice to you is to deal with the erosion, bring in some fill dirt, and, and get something aggressive uh, that, that holds soil together. And then this time of year, you know, things like a grass-clover mix is probably your best bet. You don't want to put an annual down unless you have really aggressive perennials that are going to advance into there. If you have that, if you have a situation where you've got a lot of clover and perennial grasses with rhizomial growth, then you could use a fast-growing annual grass like a ryegrass just to hold it long enough for that to kind of success into it. But you don't really have much of an advantage there. What you have, again, is you have an erosion problem that if you don't get something growing there, will get worse. So I'm sorry I don't have better news for you, but let's go ahead and take another one. Jack, uh, this is Bob from Central Florida. Uh, My question is, uh, uh, which would you recommend for perimeter to go along the perimeter fence, a thorny bramble or a uh, something in the lines of maybe a muscadine grape? Uh, details, I've got uh, roughly 150 feet of west-facing perimeter fence and 50 feet of north-facing perimeter fence at the front of my property, and I was wondering either for security or just food production. These will be on the border of a food forest. So wait, can't wait to hear your uh, response, and thanks for everything you do. Well, in the end, it's what you want, and, and you know you, you don't have to limit yourself to those two things. But if you're choosing between them and you're going to put it on a fence, I don't want a thorny bramble. If you're going to build a hedgerow that's going to act as a fence to keep people out, then a thorny bramble or something like a, a hedge laid of Rosa Ragusa or something like that might make a lot of sense. If you're going to have to be maintaining a fence line and keeping things off your fence and you're going to be putting a thorny bramble on there, it's going to be a pain in the butt every time you go in there to clean stuff off your fence. And you may have to worry about you know keeping stuff off your fence on both sides to maintain that fence line. To me, the last thing you would want would be a bramble. Um, you, you got to think a little bit about the the climate and overall environment. I, I, you know, I don't know your overall climate and environment, so you have to take everything I'm about to say with a grain of salt. But... If, if you want to kill something in my climate, put it on a west a west fence line uh, or a west side of a berm or anything like that. 
it, it will uh, have a very cold uh, periods in the winter when it takes all day for that sun to get there and be there very briefly. So if it's frost sensitive or cold sensitive at all and it's marginal for your climate, it'll probably die of cold uh, in the winter. Uh, and then in the summer, when you have that sun get all the way up overhead, bake the shit out of it, and then when everything else is getting a rest, it still get its ass baked for another four hours uh, with that sun taking that long descent in the western sky, beating on it at the hottest time of the day. Uh, it usually gets the worst of the heat and the driest of the dry. Now, there's a big difference between, let's say, Texas and Pennsylvania with that. Um, so temper all of what I just said, but think about that. So what you, and I'm thinking you're in the South or you wouldn't be, you'd be saying something like, you know, you'd be saying something like Niagara grapes or, or, or you know, uh, Riesling wine grapes or Concord grapes. If you were in the North, you wouldn't be saying Muscadine. So given that you're probably Virginia or South, it may be a little bit more true, but then are you in the Southeast where it's really, really rainy or out here in the, 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 the Southwest where it's dry and harsh? So think about the species and the varieties and whether you have irrigation or not with that. Um, and then make your decision from there. But I, I would I would not want to try to maintain a fence line covered by something with a lot of stickers on it. Uh, we had a lot of losses with the grapes I planted. They came too late because Ison sat on their toes and took forever to get them to me this year. And then we got all that rain and some of them died of rot. And then we got all the heat and then I left. So I probably lost of the grapevines I put in half maybe more of them, and the ones that get replaced are getting replaced from propagated cuttings. I'm not spending any more money on grapevines. Across the front, I did plant a lot of blackberries up by the fence, but I, I planted uh, thornless blackberries. I planted um, triple crown. I don't know how they'll do here, but I got them for next to nothing, so it wasn't a big deal. And I still have about 30 of them in pots that I'll be planting this fall, because, again, those I got in the ground late. Uh, what I've found, and what I'll be doing along all my fence lines where I've installed irrigation is the, my best bet to get something to grow is to put down like a layer of straw and leaves and then a layer of dirt and then a heavy mulch over it, building basically a low berm, a, street, a, a, a sheet mulch strip, rather than trying to build like a little mound and mulching the heck out of it for, for the grapes, which is what I did. So it's a lot more work, but it might be something you look at. Now, you, you probably have better soil than me. You probably have better climate than me. You probably have everything better than me, so whatever you want. The north-facing fence line. Um, that doesn't mean it's going to be without sun, just because it's north-facing. depends on what's there. So look at your solar exposure, because a northern fence line on a property is all facing what way? South. Unless there's something near the fence that shades out the fence. You think about that, right? I've got a How is the northern fence? Well, it's on the northern side of my property, which means unless something shades it out to the south of it, the, the entire one side of it is exposed to sun all day long, especially in the winter. So it might be a great place. So take all that into account, but I would stick, I would stay away from brambles on fence lines. Um, if I was going to put anything along a fence to deter people coming over it with thorns, I would want to do something more like a hedgerow that's easily maintained with a hedge trimmer, and I'd probably want it a little bit off the fence, uh, so it's a little bit easier to maintain. Uh, just personally, kind of like a second-level fence or something like that, because when stuff gets up into your fence, it's a pro I've got fence line right now that I've got all kinds of stuff growing into that I really need to do something about, uh, and I'm just glad it's not a whole bunch of brambles. Let's take another one. Hi, Jack. Gene in Florida here with a question for you. 
is the possible raising of minimum wage going to be used to hide hyperinflation or the high inflation you were talking about? With Los Angeles going to the $15 an hour minimum wage, they could use that as an excuse to say, well, this is why inflation is so high now. Is that the big push, or is it just tinfoil here? Your thoughts. Okay, bye. Thank you. Um, and kind of starting this out with, I don't even believe there should be a minimum wage. Um, let, let's talk about how minimum wage you know, affects inflation, and does it affect inflation? And, and the answer is, of course it does. Um, in any economy... You'll have a base level of income, what the, the, you would call the working poor. And, and no matter how big that number is, over time it becomes a, a poverty level. And what I mean by that is if, if we did raise the minimum wage to $15 an hour, and if the people in government that are lying to you and telling you nobody would get laid off or whatever were even right, and if every single person making less than $15 an hour today started making $15 an hour as their lowest paid employee on January 1st, very quickly the following would happen. A lot of people right now that are working for more than minimum wage would get raises too. Very quickly those people would look around and say, you know what, if somebody's making $15 an hour at McDonald's, and, and frankly, you don't want me to go work for McDonald's and you want me to stay here and keep programming this computer because uh, there are low-level programmers making $14 an hour. You need to pay me better. So these people in what you would call the Delta Center, their, their wages are all going to within a year or two rise. And all the people making $15 an hour become all the people right now that are making $8 an hour, let's say. Uh, it would be, wouldn't be very long at all before their spending would have the economic consequence of making that income equivalent to what it used to be a year or two ago at $8, $9 an hour. That's just how the economics work out. And that is definitely inflation. Now, are they doing it to hide inflation? No. No. They're not doing it to hide inflation. It's not like that's the motivation. This is basic class warfare. Um, you deserve more, and those greedy people that you work for should give it to you with no understanding of why they can't. Um, I did a show this week called, you know, Building Individual Liberty Through Business Ownership. And one of the people that commented on it said, I don't know that I agree with that because as an employer, um, my cost of employing a person is going up every year of complying with certain laws and regulations and reporting and all of this. And it's getting more and more expensive to employ people. You know, it didn't say anything about their wages are getting more expensive. No, their cost is. So right now, and yes, the Health Care Act, Obamacare, is part of this, but it is not, when we blame one thing for everything, we're almost always wrong. So you can't just blame Obamacare, though it is a significant burden for many employers, it's not a burden for all of them. It's not a huge burden for a lot of small businesses who have been able to just dump their employees into the pool and let them go buy Obamacare. For, for them, in some ways, it actually costs them less in some ways. But the overall cost of employment continues to go up even when wages don't. If I had 10 people working for me in 1995 for $10 an hour, and I have 10 people working for me in 2015 for $10 an hour, but by inflation alone, you'd think I as an employer would be better off. 
But the reality is my cost to employ, employ those 10 people has risen with compliance to where I've actually lost against inflation. It's not that employers don't want to give their employees wages. It's that their employees have no idea how much they cost. And, and this is not really new. This has always been the case. Let me give you some examples. When I sold cabling jobs, I sold these jobs based on a margin, and that margin determined how much of a commission that I was paid as a salesperson. So I would go to the client and say, doing this job is $50,000, and I would have estimated hours in the job. I would have estimated materials in the job and, and all the, the expenses of that job in there, and I would have a margin on there. Let's say my target gross margin would be a 40% margin. I know it sounds like a lot. I can't get into why it's not as much as you think it is because that's just gross margin. That's not net profit. And if I hit that number, then I might make my three, three or four percent, depending on where I worked on, on the job, as a commission for sales. If that margin dropped, my commission dropped. If it dropped below 25 percent, I got nothing. Okay, everybody thinks the salesman makes a lot of money. When you're good, you do. If you're not good and accurate, you don't. Not in that business anyway. Well, our average tech, and this is in this is in like 99, 2000 era. Our average tech was making about $14 an hour. You want to guess what my burden labor rate was? My burden labor rate. So when I put a, a guy on the job, what I had to say, like, this is what that guy cost the company to be on the job, it was $28.50 an hour. $28.50. And I went to work for another company that paid people like a dollar an hour more and did things a little bit higher end, and it was $34 an hour. So anywhere to double to like 120% of the wage was what the employee cost. Now, do you think the guy kicking, kicking ass and taking names, busting his ass, we had good tax, making $14 an hour thought for a second that our cost to employ him was $30 an hour or more? And you know what? If you had the conversation with them and tried to explain it, they'd never believe you and they'd never understand They have no idea what it costs to actually employ someone. They don't know that you're matching half of their SSI. They're, that's 6% right there. 7%, really. They don't realize what it costs to, to provide them even with partial health insurance. They don't understand the administrative costs of, of something like administering their 401k plan. They have no idea what it costs to employ a person. And those costs have run away. And that's why you see more and more people moving to part-time employees to shed some of those costs because they don't have to put as many things in place for part-time employees, doing all they can to move to contract labor. And you've seen the government, with its unintended consequence, right, have to then move to make it harder to employ contractors. Government hates contracting right now. They don't want people on 1099s. Too much freedom and liberty there. We got to stop that shit. So I guess... The, the whole point is, yes, minimum wage is, is part of why things cost as much as they do, which in some way influences inflation. And there's a lot of consequences to jacking up a minimum wage at a time when jobs are already being eroded and, and pushed away and replaced with technology. See, I thought, what, I, what I don't think that, the, the, I don't think everybody that's for a higher minimum wage is, is just, for the destruction of the economy. I think they really believe in it. I think they they really think it is a good thing, that it really is necessary, that government really does need to protect you from your evil employer. Um, it's just not true. 
I believe that the average person would make more money today, especially in the private sector, if no minimum wage existed. Because here's what I would do if minimum wage didn't exist, and a lot of these requirements and expenses to employ people didn't exist, and I just employed you for what you wanted to work for. I said, how much do you want? You said, I want this much, and I said, I can't do that. I can do this. When you want to do it, fine. I'd have people working for me for five bucks an hour for a month. I'd hire 20 people at five dollars an hour and say, here, figure it out. Get some experience. And I'd say it's a one-month temporary job to see if you're going to work out here. And I know out of those 10 people, four will quit first week. I know that from experience. And, and six will stick around at the end of the month. And out of those six, I'll find two that fit the culture of the company, that have the wherewithal the, and what have you, and, and, and are valuable to me. And I'll tell those two, you know what? I'll pay you $20 an hour now. You, you, I know that you're going to make me 30 33% on you is as much as I need to make. And I would pay you based on what I can make with you. And then the other ones, I'd say, you know, you're worth eight. You suck. Get out of here. You other two, you're worth maybe ten. And you could say, no, I'm worth more. Well, go somewhere else and prove it because you didn't prove it here. I could hire people that are young for five, six dollars an hour that just want experience, but then I could pay them something. A wage, and I could pay them a straight wage without all this burden on top of it. You know, that would, that would do so much for our company, and they would be learning and developing, and they would probably grow to a point where either they fit into my company, or they would grow beyond my company and go somewhere else, and I could always replace them with somebody else like that. And those jobs that pay that, that's not for you to sit there when you're 40 years old and work at for five years. That's for gaining experience and getting another opportunity or proving yourself there and moving up. That's how it's supposed to work. And you'll say it doesn't work that way, and I'll say because it can't. The system is designed so that it can't. But this is what's going to happen. Sooner or later, this minimum wage thing will move up. The next move will probably push the national minimum wage somewhere into the $10 to $11 an hour range. And you'll hear all kinds of grinding and gnashing of teeth. Uh, this is the best we can do, but no one can live on minimum wage still. You're not supposed to make a living on minimum wage. That's not what minimum wage jobs are. Again, I think if we removed it, we, we'd solve a lot of this too, because do you know how many companies pay people minimum wage because that's what minimum wage is? And you know how many people take minimum wage because that's what minimum wage is? I'm just saying. Um, but as this happens... We're moving toward this automated society anyway. Jobs are going to be eliminated in the next 10 years at a, at a breathtaking rate. I take you back to Harrison Bergeron and the quote, Well, in all previous recessions, once the economy bottomed out and production increased, unemployment decreased. But in the Great Recession, because of new and improved technologies, fewer and fewer workers were required in all sectors. With so many people forced from their jobs, the traditional economic recovery was impossible. That's not something that's going to happen over two years. That's something that's going to happen over ten. And that's where we are right now. And they'll blame automation. They'll blame minimum wage. And this is a game that they're playing right now. The, the minimum wage debate has been with us for far longer than this issue. 
This issue now is being conveniently made it up with the minimum wage debate. You see these stupid memes on Facebook of a kiosk, an electronic kiosk, and it says, $15 an hour, meet your replacement. Yep, America! I mean, come on, guys, please. Do you really think it has anything to do with minimum wage that McDonald's and Burger King and Applebee's are installing kiosks? The Panera Bread that already pays their employees quite a bit more than minimum wage are installing kiosks. That automated systems are performing the roles now of an anesthesiologist, eliminating the job of an anesthesiologist. Do, do, you, do you really think that's what it is It's about minimum wage? Or do you think that it just makes sense that if technology can do things without the problems inherent to human beings that business is going to naturally move toward technology, and now we're looking for a scapegoat. The, the, the minimum wage blame game is more about technological evolution than it is about inflation. And the stagnification of wages in America has very little to do with minimum wage and a hell of a lot to do with the cost of employing people. But I don't think anybody ever is going to tell you that on the TV news. With that, this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Well, I had to leave my family when the shot heard around the world called up those British bastards that put me to the sword. Well, I died a lowly subject, the king and monarchy. Yeah, I'm the first American who made this country free. What have you done with my country? What have you done with the founding truth? I gave my life so you could be free. And this is how, yeah, this is how you repay. That beach are running with an M1 in my hand. Before I got to cover, I was face down in the sand. Well, I'm proud to die on D-Day, and I'd do it all again. The time has shown me death and war, breach politics and sin. What are you done with my country? What are you done with the white picket fence? I gave my life. How, yeah, this is how you repay me. Yeah, I keep looking down, see it all go wrong. My blood mixed with dirt. If the Yankees call their home, well, I never would have done it if I knew what they would do. The land I fought and died for, the land that I gave you. My blood was spilled for nothing. You people aren't free. And all the rights I gave my life for just a memory. What have you done with my country? 
repay me. Now our patriots are looking back, just the other side. They're pulling for us all who live free because they died. But those of you who have turned your back on the land in which you live, when you go to meet your maker, what answer will you give? What have you done with my country? What have you done with the founding tree? I gave my life so you could be free. And this is how, yeah, this is how you repay me. What have you done with my country?